This episode is sponsored by Simply Earth Essential Oils. I use essential oils when I do hot yoga because the smell, it gets me in my zen. I love to use essential oils in my humidifier, especially during these dry winter months. Aromatherapy, it just creates positive vibes, you know? All of Simply Earth's essential oil recipes are tried and tested by in-house certified aromatherapists. Simply Earth's essential oils are 100% pure and come from the best farms all over the world. They are also GC and MS tested by a third party to ensure purity. As an added bonus, Simply Earth gives 13% of their profits to help end human trafficking. So not only will your house smell amazing, you'll also be helping to reduce human trafficking. The essential oils alone would cost over $100 from other companies, but with the Simply Earth Essential Oil Recipe Box, you get four pure oils, six recipes, and extra ingredients for only $39. And when you subscribe, you get a free big bonus box with even more natural goodies. As well as a free $20 gift card for subscribing using our code simplyearth.com forward slash FDS. That's simplyearth.com forward slash FDS. Hey, queens, are you ready to level up? Then join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy, where you can find weekly bonus content and FDS commentary on all the latest pop culture, relationship, and dating news. If you just want to listen to the extra bonus content, we have the Lurker Mode tier on our Patreon. If you want merchandise, access to the private FDS Patreon Discord, which also includes a monthly book club with FDS and feminist-themed books, as well as FDS merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, and the opportunity to discuss topics with the FDS Podcast Queens live as well as submit stories for our Rose Disco Queen and Nasus discussions on the podcast itself. So if you'd like access to all this and more, visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy. What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm your host, Ro. I'm Savannah. And I'm Lilith. And today we have a very special guest, a guest who we broke our normal parameters of interviews for, because we generally like to keep our podcast female focused, but we figured we'd make an exception for one man and one man only. And that is Lundy Bancroft, author of Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men. Uh, He has 35 years of experience in the field of domestic violence, both as a counselor, evaluator, and investigator of abusive men, and as a workshop leader and educator for women. His book is one of the most recommended books on the FDS reading material list, often quoted, often cited, often highlighted. Lenny Bancroft. Uh, Thank you for uh, letting me infiltrate your podcast. Female-only space. (laughs) (laughs) Our sacred female-only ground. But no, actually, I'm I'm really glad you could be here. I, I, I love your book, so thank you. Thank you. Just to kind of kick off the discussion, you go over a lot of the themes that we're going to cover, I think, in this interview in your book. But for the audience that has not yet read your book, could you tell us about your background and what led you to write? Why does he do that? So I started, you know, when I was fairly young, being a counselor for abusive men in an abuser program. And so that, that's how, where I got trained. And that's where I started to really be able to grasp the issues. And we got so much insight into abusers, largely because the program that I worked in, we did confidential interviews with the abused woman where he's not there. And you get such a completely different story from the abused woman because abusers just lie and distort. And I mean, 
they just create an entire false image of what's going on in that relationship. So then when you talk to the woman and hear the real deal, it kind of like wakes you up almost out of some dream you've been in. And I think what's most educational or what was most educational for me was then seeing the contrast, like seeing how he, the abuser, while he's in his abuser group, how he describes what's going on versus what I know is really going on because I've been talking to her. And so that became a huge education in how abusers think and how they frame what's going on in the relationship and just all kinds of things that we'll talk about, about why they behave the way they do and how they justify behaving the way they do. Then I had multiple people in my life saying like, you've got all this information in your head, but the, the people who need it are women. Are women. So I, I, was, I was encouraged by people to write a book that really puts out what I was learning from working with abusers in the abuser program. And one person characterized it in a way that, that I thought was really, was really good, which is she said that you're like someone in a football game who got like the other team's playbook and leaked it. And I like that. It's like, yeah, I'm like a, an infiltrator or a, or a traitor or whatever that's going to that's gonna give out the, all of the abusive men's secrets and strategies. I'm going to leak them to, to women. I actually had that same thought when I was reading your book. I was like, wow, Lundy's like a snitch. He's like snitching on all the <laughs> It's so true. I'm a proud snitch. <laughs> Snitching on abusive men. Yeah, it's something to be proud of. I guess the question would be, I guess in the forefront of everyone's mind is like, why do you think that your framing of this issue was so popular? Like, because this book is really, really popular. This book has been cited many, many times. What do you think that this book brought that's really been missing from the profile and diaspora of books about violent men? Well, I think a lot of it is that so much of what's written and said about men who abuse women focuses mistakenly on what's going on in this guy's feeling world, like his emotional world, his psychology. There was even a whole book written about the psychology of abusers that was just like, to me, almost complete nonsense. It's A, wrong. B, it's focusing on the wrong issues, even if it weren't wrong, but it's wrong. And certainly there are behavioral problems that are rooted in people's emotional issues, but men's abuse of women is not one of them. Men's abuse of women is rooted almost entirely in how they think. And a woman who's in an abusive relationship works so hard to figure out, like, why does he get so upset? And why does he act so jealous? And, and, and why does he get so mad? And all these things about trying to understand his emotions and like, how can I make him feel better? And she works herself like to death trying to get him to feel better. And it, it doesn't seem to do any good. And the reason it doesn't do any good is because that's not where the problem lies. The problem lies in his attitudes and values. The problem is in his thinking world. As far as I know, Why Does He Do That was the first book that ever zeroed in on how do these guys think, you know, inside the minds of. And what happens when abused women read that is that it just seems to so quickly click. Because she, she's been struggling with the whole emotional thing with trying to make him feel better. So she, she's already felt like that, geez, it doesn't seem to work. So then when she reads something, it starts to lay out how he thinks. And she goes, whoa, he does think like that. And yeah, he does think like this other way you're saying. And oh, yeah, he's clearly got these attitudes you're saying he has. It just, it just clicks. That makes sense, at least to me, because I feel like part of the reason that female dating strategy took off as well is that we don't focus as much on like the feelings or like why necessarily that men do things. We don't believe men's lies. 
Not, but not even just that. It's that like we don't like take on our responsibility to figure out like abusive men, right? Whereas I feel like so much of the self help genre before has always been about trying to understand all of their psychology so you can almost tie yourself in pretzel knots trying to like therapize a person that or or get a person who won't go to therapy to therapy and also like overcomplicating the reasons why men do things right it's like sometimes they just do things because they can it's not necessarily like your job to go back in his childhood and figure out like all of the steps it took for him to be like an abusive person. Sometimes with other self-help books or relationship books, they put so much of that emotional labor on women. And that's how women end up in these cycles of abuse, not understanding like how to get in, get it out or set appropriate boundaries. I think that's all true. But I would just add that different kinds of behavioral problems come from different places. And men's abuse of women is almost entirely culturally trained. He could have had a great childhood or he could have had a rotten childhood. He could have had awesome parents or rotten parents. That turns out to have almost nothing to do with it. Growing up in a bad situation is going to affect you in all kinds of other ways, but that's not what turns you into an abuser. There was a very interesting study done a long time ago that looked specifically at boys who'd grown up with an abuser in the home. Their mom was being abused by their dad or stepdad or whoever the key man was in the home. And it compared boys who'd been more traumatized by the abuse they witnessed to boys who'd been less traumatized by the abuse they witnessed and found that those two groups had the same rates of abusing women in their own adulthood. The kids who'd been less traumatized were abusing women just as much as the boys who'd been more traumatized. Then that same study divided them into some other groups to try to see like, well, what's the difference? Like the boys who were this or the boys who were that. And where they found the big difference, the boys who'd bought in to the abuser's way of blaming it on mom versus the boys who had not bought in to the abuser's ways of blaming it on mom. In other words, men's abuse of women is almost entirely societally taught by growing up into a set of values saying that men have a right to require women to provide certain kinds of emotional and physical and sexual services, and men have the right to enforce that, and when women don't cooperate, men have the right to punish. I'm really glad you've raised that, Lindy, because working in the violence against women sector, which is what I do, and we get that defence all the time. Oh, he was abused as a child. Oh, he doesn't know any better. Oh, he was, you know, beaten by his dad. So this is why he goes on to beat other women. So it's really, really, really good to know that that is just a, a baseless excuse. And I think you touch on it in your book as well. And the explanations around why that's the basis excuse is also really, really solid as well. For example, I have never once seen an abusive man make any changes in how he treats women from any process of emotional healing. And I've seen that tried a zillion times. We do occasionally see abusive men change, but only through a process of changing their values and attitudes. Emotional healing never leads to any improvement in how he treats women. Yeah. And you mentioned this in the book, but I just want to say for the audience that hasn't read it yet, that abusers often use this sort of emotional manipulation to, it it is emotional manipulation. They'll be like, I was traumatized as a kid, or, you know, men who sexually abuse women might be like, I was sexually abused as a child, even though most of them were not just because they know that they can get a lot of mileage out of making people feel bad for them. I've experienced that a lot from men. So it it was really great to have someone call that out. I'm glad. So when we talk about male violence, there's always like a knee jerk defense against calling out the specific attitudes or cultural attitudes that are contributing to male violence or acknowledging that those attitudes contribute to the problem at the very least, especially at the cultural level or societal level. How have you particularly moved past the discomfort of seeing these attitudes that men have as a man yourself? Or like what really pushed you to 
go from absorbing a lot of these messages and then creating this framework? Wow, it's such a complicated process that I think I'll only be able to point to a couple aspects of it. But so much of it to me comes down to having women in my life that I really care about. You know, my sisters, my mother, my close friends, and think like, why would I want people that I care about to be treated this way? Like, this is awful. And I don't think people learn history enough. I mean, they learn history the way you were taught it in school of like, oh, memorize the Roman emperors or some junk like that. But they don't learn history about like real life social history about things that matter to human beings. So fortunately in college, I also just learned a lot of, of women's history and the history of oppression of women, of men's oppression of women. And a lot of things look different when you actually know your history. So that was a really important factor. And I think that allies are important to any movement. And it's like, why wouldn't you just join forces with the side that's right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That's what we've been saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I have an interesting experience as, as, a, as a man, you know, who's been involved throughout my adult life in fighting violence against women is that people often look at me a little funny and they say like, like, what's this really about? Like, was your father an abuser or, you know, were you an abused child? Like, like, what's up? Like, what's up with you, buddy? Kind of thing. <laughs> and when a white person devotes their life to fighting racism, people don't say, wait a minute, what's up with you? You know, when men take on fighting for women's rights, that shouldn't be any bigger deal than when white people take on fighting for the rights of people of color. The attitude should be like, oh, good, you're doing a good thing. That's what you should be doing. Uh, not like, oh, you must have some special connection to the issue. It's like, Fighting for justice is a good human impulse. Like, yeah, do that. And the thing is, there are actually a lot of men who care about women's rights, but we, that they are not, they don't tend to be as outspoken as they need to be. I feel like we just should treat allies as like valuable helpers who we also need to slightly keep an eye on. I think that's how any movement needs to treat its allies. And, and like, yeah, glad to have you around, but we are going to watch out a little bit too and, uh, and not make too big a deal about it. Yeah, that's fair. I agree. Like, like, yeah, you should be fighting for, like, like I said, you know, just to repeat what I already said, like, you should be fighting for justice. Like, that's what you ought to be doing. <laughs> um, why does he do that was, like, was uh, written 20 years ago now. Is there anything you would change or add to the content of the book in terms of, do you think anything has shifted either socially or culturally that has made the abuse phenomena either better or worse? I'm glad you asked me that question because I haven't been asked that in exactly that way before. And it really makes me, it, it, it makes me think about a number of things. One is I'm quite concerned, and I've just written a blog post about this recently, a couple of them, about how the popular term for abusive men is switching over to referring to them as narcissists. And that I think is a big mistake. The nature of narcissism of really severe self-centeredness is in many ways so different from men's abusive women. It has a lot of common ground, which is part of why it's become popular to call abusers narcissists. But there are ways that it's very different. And the reason it concerns me so much, or one of the reasons why it concerns me so much, is that it completely takes the responsibility off the community. It completely takes the responsibility off of the society. It obscures the question of men's oppression of women. And instead, it all becomes about his psychological issues. Like, oh, you know, he's got early narcissistic injuries, as they call them. And, oh, let's see what happened in his family of origin. 
And this whole structure of exploitation and silencing of women, suddenly you get to ignore by labeling all abusers narcissists. So that worries me. Another thing that's on my mind is that the atmosphere for doing women's organizing in general is difficult right now. And we just need a lot more activists. We need a lot more women and a lot more male allies out there you know, fighting for women's rights in like a slightly rude way. Like we got to stop being, we got to go back to the days of not being quite so polite. Hey, hey, Lundy, have you met us before? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I haven't. (laughs) Do you know what rude femmes are? Yeah. (laughs) Like feminists that are rude? (laughs) Allow us to introduce ourselves. The meanest female place on the internet. (laughs) Uh, I I am honored to meet you. We were called the meanest female-only place on the internet by... It's mostly a joke. We're actually not that mean, but it's only because men think that we're mean when we call out their abusive strategies. Yeah. And it's because we just say it as it is. We don't, like, sugarcoat. I think that's awesome. Abusers and, and, and various other destructive people make it sound like you're being mean to them when all you did is describe exactly what they did. Yes! <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> yes, this is my ex in a nutshell. <laughs> just tell the truth about oppression and people start talking like, like you're some kind of out of control radical. And all you did was like, I just described what happened. Yeah. I always say to people, I'm not insulting you. I'm just describing you accurately. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, it's not even like I'm not even describing you as a person. I'm describing what your actions were. This, these were your actions. It's like, what, I'm not supposed to say what your actions were? And then the other thing that has really concerned me over the 20 years since I wrote the book, and it was concerning me at that time, but it's much more concerning to me now. And there are a couple of things, actually, I would specifically like to say to your audience about this next subject, which is that the court conditions for mothers regarding child custody are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. They are worse now than they were 20 years ago. They're, they're, they're worse than they were 30 years ago. It's, they're worse than they were five years ago. They're just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And the myth that the family courts favor mothers is still so widespread through our society, even though that if that ever was true, it certainly hasn't been true for at least 40 years now. It's been at least since the late 70s that the maternal advantage was gone. And the, the current family court atmosphere is really hostile outright hostile to mothers. It's it's become an unbelievable scene. I, my, this is what my latest book is about, which we can come back and talk about that. So a couple of things that I really want people to be aware of is that it's very dangerous to tell yourself, well, I'm going to have a child with him and that's going to solve the problem. And there are a couple ways that I've seen this sort of thinking play out. One way is the, well, then he'll finally see I'm not cheating on him because so many abusive men are so jealous. That's a lot of how they're, it's really possessiveness. I think jealousy is not even really the right word. They're possessive. And so that's a lot of how their abusiveness comes out. That kind of ownership mentality comes out through their sexual jealousy. And she thinks, well, if I'm pregnant, then I'm obviously not out cheating on him. And if I'm home taking care of our child, then I'm certainly not out cheating on him. So, so if we have kids, you know, that's going to solve the jealousy problem. And it doesn't because the, the problem is possessiveness. And he just goes right on accusing her of all the same stuff right through her pregnancy and right when she's trapped at home with three and four kids. He's still calling her all the horrible names and saying that she's sleeping with every man in town and all that stuff because it has nothing to do with his behavior. 
he, he abusive men used their jealous accusations as a way to cut her off from people and as a, just another thing to hammer her with. Another thing I hear along these lines is, well, if I, if, if, if I have a kid with him, then he'll finally have to settle down and stop drinking so much and, and start being more responsible and, and stop being so mean to me because he'll have to be a responsible parent. It's like, no, he doesn't, unfortunately. Abusive men don't turn into responsible fathers. They turn into quite lousy, manipulative, etc. fathers. And what happens is, once you've got a kid with him, then there's no way to get away from him. I mean, you can break up with him, but you can never get him out of your life. You're not literally married to him, but in another sense of the word, you're married to him forever once you've got kids with him. He's got parental rights, and the court is not going to keep him away from those kids. You can go to the court and say, he did this and this and this and this to me, and the court will say, what's that got to do with the kids? And you can even say, he did this and this to the kids, and they'll say, oh, well, that was in the tension of your difficult marriage. You know, you know, it's, it's all fine now. He can have them 50-50. I mean, this is the big push in the courts now. It's 50-50 time between the father and the, and the mom. So please, you know, please do not have kids with an, with an abusive man. It's not going to make things any better. And then the power he's going to have over you through the child custody system is never going to end. My new book that just came out a few months ago is called In Custody, and it's it's different for me because it's a novel. It's actually a suspense novel. I, I decided I wanted to head in a completely different direction, and, and so I wanted to write a book about the corruption and the very anti-mother atmosphere that has taken over nationally in the family courts, but I wanted to do it in the form of like a more entertaining suspense, romance, et cetera, kind of novel. And I also wanted to create something that you could hand to someone who really doesn't get the issue and say, here, here's a fun suspense novel to read that simultaneously will get you to understand what's happening currently to mothers in the family court. The family court system is interesting because it seems like, yes, for the past maybe 20 or 30 years, there's been a concerted effort on behalf of men's rights activists or father's rights activists to change a lot of the default court rulings or the perception of fathers in court rulings because they were successfully able to create a narrative within the legal system that um, it's not that fathers are abandoning their children, is that mothers are withholding access to the children and that a lot of the abuse or psychological damage or emotional damage or even physical damage that are caused by fathers is negligible to their right to have access to the children. Um, how would we even overcome narratives like that at this point, because like you said, that's been the push for the last 40 or 50 years. They've been incrementally and very successfully trying to force women to keep in contact with men who are very, very abusive. And I can I can even count in my own life within my own relatives, this being the case of them being around abusive men. Sometimes these kids would go over to their father's house. Their father would have a new girlfriend. He's abusing the new girlfriend, right? And they're experiencing all this trauma. Like, how do you then, how do we shift the narrative to actually what's best for the children. Well, you have to be careful asking me that question because that's the kind of thing I get started on. You'll never get me to stop. But <laughs> uh, but no, I'll, I'll discipline myself here. So the first thing is, it's unfortunately too late to change family court attitudes through training. Like I've done tons of training. I've probably trained family court judges specifically on domestic abuse in over a dozen states, and it just didn't do any good. So the first thing is mothers have to organize. And unfortunately, the abusers organized, and they organized well. They started organizing back in the 80s, and that's when they created their whole abuser movement, the father's rights movement. And it's, which is really a father supremacy movement. You know, ca calling them a father's rights group is like, is like calling the Ku Klux Klan an equal rights for white people organization. 
they're not interested in equality for fathers at all. They love that term. They love to say they're for equality for fathers. But as soon as you see what their actual stands are, they're for father supremacy, just out and out. But it's hard for mothers to organize because they're trying to raise their kids and they don't have any money. Because they're actually raising the kids. Exactly. That's basically what it is. Yeah, men have way too much free time, okay? Deadbeat dads have too much free time to organize amongst each other to fuck over women. I've got to tell you my prize story about this. It was because I used to be a guardian ad litem. I used to serve as a guardian ad litem, which is for people who don't know that it's a type of custody evaluator. And I was a custody evaluator on a case I didn't realize until I was deeply into the case that the father was one of the most visible father's rights activists in the state of Massachusetts, that his name was actually known all over the state. I didn't know his name because I wasn't up on that. But I started to realize, whoa, this guy's had his name in the paper and everything. Like This guy's is a big name. And then his boys say to me, I say, so what kind of thing, you know, as just part of my evaluation as the, as the guardian ad litem, I say, so, you know, what kinds of things do you do when you're at your father's house? What do you, you know, how do you spend your time with him? Like trying to get a read on their connection to him. And, and the boys who are both young teenagers say to me, oh, you know, we, we don't really spend a lot of time with him when we're over at his house. He's really busy with his father's organization. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can personally attest to something like that. Like when my parents were divorced and I would have visitation with my dad, he would just drop me off at like my great aunt's house and then I would just watch TV with her all day. And I'm like, why did you pick me up? But it seemed like it was more of a control issue over my mother than it was like that he actually wanted to parent me. So that's bad enough. But to me, it takes it to another level of irony when the reason he can't spend time with them is because he's too busy with his father's organization. Right. Because <laughs> he's right. too busy fighting for the rights of fathers. It shows that that's, as you're saying, it exactly shows what you're saying that has nothing to do with fathering and everything to do with control. Yeah, it's been really frustrating seeing how men have very... Uh, effectively wielded and weaponized the legal system against the women that they abuse. In my own family, um, I have a few uncles that are highly abusive. They'll demand custody. They'll go to the court. Be, oh, that bitch is taking my kids away from me and not letting me see the kids, blah, blah, blah. They'll fight for visitation and then they'll not show up. And so what'll happen is my, he'll, he'll schedule the visitation. My aunt will be like, okay, you're going to see daddy today. And then he'll just not show up. And then the mother's left with this emotionally broken child to, you know, try to pick up the pieces after, by the way, he's gone through and put the whole family through this whole legal hell. Right. So yeah, it's, it is, really frustrating to see this sort of lawfare almost that abusers have been waging against women. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm very interested in like, what are some like counter strategies against that? So, so, um, and by the way, I take on the whole father's rights movement in that book in custody. Also, I really believe that mothers are going to have to organize court by court. In other words, they're going to have to find other moms whose cases are out of the same court and we have to start developing a whole system that makes it easier for moms to find out what other mothers have their cases out of the same court and start picketing courts, even if they have to wear masks so the judges can't tell who's out there So because the judges will get them back for that and start leafleting. The, the, the focus, unfortunately, tends to be on governments like, oh, we're going to we're going to pass new laws and we're going to press our elected officials. And it doesn't help, unfortunately. A lot of states now have much better laws about child custody with respect to domestic abuse. It doesn't matter because the judges don't care what the law is. The family law judges don't care what the law is. So the, the focus has to be on protesting the court, not trying to go through legislatures, state or federal legislatures. Approved laws don't don't do anything. 
So there's a new organization that's forming. I'm actually connected to the, to the people who are starting it called Mothers on the Rise that's going to have as a big part of its focus helping mothers do this kind of county by county, court by court on the ground grassroots, the real grassroots organizing is the only way we're going to, we're going to win this. There've been 30 years now. I've, I just read a book recently that's still in draft. It could be a long time before it's out, unfortunately, that uh, somebody from the California Protective Parents Association is working on writing about the whole history of the battle for custody reform for the past 30 years, mothers fighting for custody reform. This book just shows how effort after effort, effort after effort that's been top down has just not worked to try to influence policy people, to try to change law to try to hold conferences. It's all good ideas. It's all important ideas. It hasn't worked. We're going to have to do a bottom-up grassroots organizing approach. That's interesting. So even when the law is more favorable to mothers, the judges, there's a lot of quote-unquote activist judges or judges who feel who are, that... Judges who are sympathetic to the abuser. Yeah, to abusers, That which is not surprising. I mean, there's, there's, there's layers and layers and layers to this stuff. And as I say, I could talk to you about it all day, but just one, one way to frame it, and then this reminds me of another thing I should say, is that judges tend to be people who are pretty into power. And particularly in family law, because they have an extraordinary power. A, a, a trial court judge like doesn't have nearly the kind of power that a family law judge has, because a family law judge is the judge and the jury. <laughs> He or she is making all the decisions. They have extraordinary power and they get into it. They get, they get very addicted to it. And if you're faced with so someone before you, you have two people, one of whom is a reasonable looking person and another one who is accusing him of being a power abuser, your heart's not going to go out to her. Your heart's going to go out to him because you're attracted to power also. You're going to, it's not that you're going to think of him as abusive. You're not going to think of him as abusive, but you're going to think of him as being kind of like you. <laughs> you're going to connect with him. The, intuitively, you're going to connect with him and she's going to get on your nerves. Yeah. And, the, and I think I read a statistic somewhere that over 70 to 80% of family court judges are male. So it's just like, it's a system by which there's just by volume more male judges. And so they're probably going to have a little bit more of a sympathetic attitudes towards other men. But unfortunately not. Really? Unfortunately, the female judges are just as bad to moms as the male judges really? are. Really? Why? But I think that's because there is a product still of a whole male-dominated socialization of the legal field. How, you know, how they, all kinds of steps they had to go through to ever become a judge, that by the time they're there, they're pretty much thinking like men. Wow. Yeah, they're pick-me's. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Women get blown, mothers get blown away by how they're treated by female judges. They're thinking, this judge may even be a mother herself. How can she possibly be treating me like this? Uh, but they're into power. That's the thing. By the time they get to a judge, they're much more identified with power than they are with their femaleness. That makes sense because we, we do often talk about the power structures that exist and how the type of women that are successful within that are often the type of women who are willing to push male narratives with a female face, right? So just because they're also women doesn't mean that they're necessarily sympathetic to women's causes. In fact, in order for them to get the positions that they're in, they may have to demonstrate that they're demonstrably not sympathetic to female co uh, causes. In an organization that I created, we talk about the concept of internalized oppression and how you sometimes start to like try to be like the people that are keeping you down to sort of prove that you're not 
you know, I'm not one of them. Oh, I'm not like other women. Like I'm more like the guys. I'm going to get in good with the guys kind of thing. There was one, one other thought that I had that I, that I thought might be important for your audience is that one of the many things that has driven these terrible changes that have happened over the past 30 years in the whole custody environment is early studies that came out that claimed to find that children were doing much worse if they were growing up in single parent homes with growing up with single moms and that children really need a father. And these studies were showing, oh, that they had higher rates of this and that and the other and the other thing. And this was a fraud because these studies, well, it was one study actually that got the most news, but it was, I think there were some others, if I remember right, that were related to it. These studies didn't control for class and single mothers are poor by and large. And what these studies were showing was how destructive poverty is. You should look at that study. You should look at that study and say, the society needs to get much more serious about doing something about poverty if it cares about kids. They in no sense proved that kids are damaged by not having a father. Single mothers can raise kids great. Single fathers can raise kids great if they're loving, responsible, non-abusive fathers. It's like, it's not, the problem is not whether there's one parent or two parents there. The problem is, a, is there enough support for those kids, which we really need four, five, six adults for, let's face it. And is there enough economic resource? My other problem with those studies is that they're comparing uh, single mothers to intact families. I would like if they would compare single mothers to abusive families, because there are some families where the abuse is so bad that it is actually better to just be raised by a single mother. For the man to be in that picture at all is is more harmful to the child than if he weren't. I, I, in fact, I, I would argue it's always better for kids to be with a single mother than to be in a family where their dad is abusing their mother. I would argue that's always Always, better. yeah. That's been a really, really, really big manosphere talking point. Fatherlessness is a problem. Yeah. It's been like a complete and total demonization of, uh, yeah, single mothers and that single mothers are the problem and that fatherlessness is the problem. But it also has like a really weird Western focus because it's not as if other countries where marriage is either culturally enforced or legally enforced don't have domestic violence and don't have problems and don't have like men that go off the rails, right? Like there's a lot of countries right now where the marriage rates are high, the divorce rates are low, and the violence rates are really, really high still, right? So it seems to me that by framing it as a single mother issue or a fatherlessness issue, it's just another way to blame women instead of like the societal structures, because marriage or not marriage doesn't really change uh, the attitudes that men have, especially if they have a proclivity towards being abusive and violent towards women, right? And you can be a high marriage rate society with quote unquote fathers in the home that's still of dysfunction and abuse. So I think I think that narrative really, really needs to change. And, and in fact, high divorce might be might be a, like an indication that a society is somewhat healthy because then women can leave abusive men versus like other societies where divorce is frowned upon and they can't go anywhere. And in fact, studies confirm what you're saying. Studies confirm that in, in society where women have less access to divorce, they face higher rates of domestic violence. That's already been, that's already been demonstrated. And notice that these hypocrites do not seem to be concerned about motherlessness. They're not wringing their hands about all these kids that are out there being raised by single dads. And there's a lot of kids in society being raised by single dads. And they're not at all concerned about the ways that family courts are cutting mothers off from their kids. It's all about, oh, let's talk about how these courts are cutting fathers off from their kids, which they're not doing. But boy, are they cutting mothers off from their kids. Why aren't you concerned about motherlessness? Yeah. What about the, all the women who get murdered by their partners? You know, what about those kids who are now orphans, effectively? So, you know, they never seem to give a shit about that. For example. 
Hey, queens, you know, here at The Female Dating Strategy, we're all about taking care of our sexual health and the all important necessity of getting regularly tested for STDs. 51% of people don't get tested because they don't want to bring up sex or STDs in discussions with their healthcare providers. Thanks to our sponsor, Let's Get Checked, you're covered. Let's Get Checked is an at-home testing company, which is easy and confidential to take an STD test from the comfort of your own home without the awkwardness or unease of visiting a clinic or a healthcare professional. So here's how Let's Get Checked works. You simply go to their site, order a sexual health testing kit, and it arrives at your door in a small, discreet package. From there, you do a small finger prick and send the sample back to their lab with their prepaid shipping label. And in two to five days, you'll get your results and a Let's Get Checked nurse will be available to discuss your results with you if you'd like their feedback. So navigate to letsgetchecked.com and enter your order and enter the code strategy exclamation point. That's letsgetchecked.com with code strategy exclamation point for 30% off. So thanks so much for our sponsors. Let's get checked and back to the show. So what do you think of the Manosphere? Oh yeah. There's just been a huge rise of these different movements coming from men, red pill, MGTOW. Uh, incel movement as well. <laughs> incels, right? <laughs> Our friendly neighborhood incels. <laughs> uh, <laughs> incels low-key are kind of hilarious. So the only group where like, I read it, I'm like, their self-owns are actually masterful comedic displays. Well, because they don't have access to women, right? Yeah. But the red pillars are the ones that actually scare me because they're the ones who are advocating for dating practices that are effectively emotional abuse. It's abusive, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. So yeah, Lenny, I'm curious what your, what your thoughts on, you know. It's First of all, it just blows my mind that, that they can succeed in making a movement out of the fact that they have made themselves so unappealing that no one will sleep with them. <laughs> um, the, it's like maybe the problem is that you're an asshole in a ratty T-shirt. Why would somebody want to sleep with you? Based. <laughs> I mean, we have tried to tell them that, but they just still don't listen to us. <laughs> We've been screaming it from the top of our lungs. Bathe yourself. <laughs> But the the on a, on a on a slightly more serious note, although I was pretty serious about that too. <laughs> oh, we are. We're serious. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we laugh at our trauma. We may that we use humor to cope with the pain. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the and and I often when, when often when I laugh at something, people start to say what I'm saying is true, and I said I'm not laughing because I don't think what you're saying is true. I think the truth is often funny. Yeah. The um, but I I believe it's. Ultimately, about oppression. I believe that people who are behaving oppressively or even who aren't behaving that oppressively, but are connected to an oppressive group and are getting the benefits that that oppressive group gets from ripping off the other group, they become very attached to their comforts. They become very attached to their privileges. They become very attached to being catered to. I mean, rich people act as if giving up three out of their six Rolls Royces would traumatize them. <laughs> So the ability of people in positions of privilege to whine until the rest of us are deaf about what it would be like if they didn't have these horribly unfair privileges, I just have zero sympathy for this stuff. And what dominant groups do is when they lose a tenth of what needs to be taken from them, 
of what would fairly be taken from them, they're immediately in a horrible victim crisis about it, making themselves into the victim and acting like terrible things are being done to them. It's like, we haven't nearly taken from you what needs to be taken from you yet. Are you kidding? Yeah, that's one of the reasons why we've made the decision to not sugarcoat or be nice about a lot of the topics that we cover is because because of what you're saying is that the reaction is extreme when you ask for a little bit, right? So it's like, just ask for everything you want. You may as well ask for a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. You mentioned in the book that there's no right way to ask for something from an abuser. And I find this to be very true with women when we're talking about relationships or bad male behavior, whatever we ask men to shape up. They always have this, even when what we're asking for is completely reasonable, they have this completely distorted, excessively angry response to, you know, shove it back down our throat and to make women think twice about asking for more again. So, um yeah, I just feel like the internet is creating that on like a massive, massive scale. It's like, it's taking that problem and putting it on steroids. Yeah. And it really, it just turns the worst aspects of people absolutely loose to blossom, which is really, which is too bad. And the, I, I think that anger is, is a very, very powerful and important force in people who are downtrodden, people who are kept down. And I know that anger can have unhealthy aspects because it can eat you up inside and give you ulcers and that kind of stuff. And I'm not, I'm not talking about that aspect of anger, but I'm talking about being angry, being outraged. There's tremendous power in that. There's tremendous liberating power in that. And people should be proud of their anger and should consider their anger really important and really justified, assuming that it is justified. I'm not talking about men's anger, but I'm talking about women's anger. Although men sometimes have things to be legitimately angry at, just not at women. Men have very legitimate anger as working class people, as men of color, as people who've been ripped off in other kinds of ways. They're directing their anger at women at exactly the wrong direction. Yeah, it's been weird watching the men's rights activists. All of their platforms are just specifically anti-feminist. And a lot of times they assign feminism to the reason that something is quote unquote unfair to men, but like, it's not feminism that created the problem. Like they, they'll talk about the male homelessness problem. And I'm like, what does feminism have to do with male homelessness? Like that's a society, society wide issue and the way that we structure capitalism. I don't feel like women are responsible for that in particular, but it's just a way for them to be anti-feminist while pretending that they're actually caring about men. And to me, it's no different from people who just are on and on and on about people on welfare. It's like, oh, let's blame the people who have the least influence over societal decisions for what's going wrong in society. It's like, that's just, it's absolutely backwards. It makes, it, it makes zero, absolutely zero sense to, to blame the people that have the least say. Yeah. I wanted to zero in on the manosphere a little bit though, because I, just for some context, Lundy, um, I, when I read your book, Why Does He Do That? I read it two years ago and I, this was after I'd already like grown up with the internet. I already knew about re the red pill. I already knew about incels. You know, I already knew about the manosphere stuff and reading your book. I was horrified to realize that a lot of the strategies that abusers use are narratives that are perpetuated on the manosphere. And in your book, you say that the reason why men abuse women, it's not because of emotional trauma or it's not because of this or that. It's because of attitudes and because they feel entitled. And I feel very strongly that the manosphere, um, you know, incels, red pill, pickup artistry, all that is it's almost like all of the abusive men just like got together to create an online movement and to create a whole ethos around perpetuating their abuse. And they're also grooming men who might not otherwise have been abusive, but they're taking men who maybe didn't 
come with those entitled attitudes or maybe weren't as entitled and they're making them more entitled or they're, they're making their attitudes towards women worse and more abusive. And so, you know, you talk about, you know, the cultural training that men receive. And I do feel quite strongly that the manosphere is probably the number one most toxic place that men get that kind of cultural training. I think you are 100% right. I think it's horrible. And it's clearly feeding people. There's just no question that, that it's feeding the worst aspects of men. And there are a lot of decent men in this world. And there are a lot of men who are te- sort of teetering in the middle somewhere. And then there's a lot of abusers. And and abusers are going to be abusers, although it's still not good for them to be feeding off of each other because it makes them even worse. But I'm with you that it really worries me most of all about these men who are somewhat teetering in the middle. And it's going to be the perfect thing to recruit them. These these guys, the, the, the whole manosphere is like a recruiting system for abusers. It is a training ground for abusers as well. Yeah, as well. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. In your estimation, approximately what percentage of the male population has the capacity to be an abuser? There's some women who are like, oh, it's 100%, whereas men seem to think it's only a very small number of men who are abusers. Um, Do you think it's like 40%, 50%? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I can tell you that that one man in six who is currently in a relationship is abusing his partner in a way that includes some element of physical violence. So that's already a ton of people, particularly when we start to think about extreme coercive control, like dominating who she can talk to, where she can go, taking money away from her, humiliating her sexually, all this kind of stuff. This is so rampant in how men treat women in intimate relationships. It's the product of a whole societal system that for thousands of years has been working to keep women down. And the this term that I think the historian Howard Zinn used, and I'm sure various other people used, that I just think was so correct of calling it intimate oppression. It's rampant. And what matters most to me about this is that it means that a woman can be involved with two or three, or I don't know, maybe more, but at least she can be involved with two or three, at least, abusive guys in a row without that saying anything about her, because there's so many of them out there. And, you know, if you've been involved in with six or seven in a row, maybe you should try to look at what's going on. But there, there, I feel like there's all this pathologizing of women, like, oh, well, why is she involved with another abuser? There must be something up with that. It's like, no, they're all over the place, and they don't have an A on their forehead. And a lot of the clients that I worked with over the, over the years, a lot of the abusers that I worked with over the years, part of their style was to go after a woman who was coming off of an abusive relationship and be like, oh, I can't believe how he treated you. What a horrible thing. I would never treat a woman like that. And he's actually her helper. So she feels grateful to him. Like, oh, he was one of the people that got me out of this other situation. And now he's abusing me too. It doesn't mean anything about her. Modern cultural society often grooms women out of their self-protective mechanisms as well. And that's something that we've railed against on our podcast quite a bit, especially certain aspects of liberal feminism. Like we were like we were just discussing um, like the Army Hammer case, uh, and he's been accused of rape and all sorts of abuse. But um, he also had this, quote, cannibalism fetish. And there was like an entire article that was put into women's magazines like, oh, the cannibalism fetish isn't the problem. And that like you shouldn't kink shame. And we're like, if a man says he wants to cook and eat, you, it's probably time to hang it up. 
<laughs> and then have sex with your body parts. This is probably a disturbed individual and like just just on the off chance that he's not lying about that <laughs> or that it's not just like a fantasy realm that you should probably not take your chances with this person. But this was published in Cosmo, a major magazine for women where they're telling us that we need to be more understanding of men with cannibalism fetishes. And I'm like, at this point, like, just tell us to like butter ourselves down and marinate in a tub and like wait for the cannibals to come. Like, actually <laughs> an insane narrative that is being pushed by mainstream women's media, right? It's not even like men's media, it's women's media. And so anything that the average person would have a knee-jerk self-protective response to, there's an element of women's media that is like contributing to grooming women out of basic self-protective instincts. Okay. So um, I'll get on another one of my soapboxes. The, um, okay. <laughs> I read about 20 pages because it's as much as I could stomach. And it's funny because often people can then tell me what book I'm referring to before I say it. Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh. <laughs> Savannah can go off on that too. I'm sorry. In those first 20 pages, I don't know if it was even 20. I mean, it, the whole thing was so disgusting. But within that first whatever that I got through, roughly 20 pages, uh, the main character there, his name's Grey, right? That's the main character. Yeah, Christian Grey. He or he's one he's one of the two main characters. He had covered something like nine out of twelve of the warning signs that I teach teen girls about who's likely to be an abusive male. So it's like this was a study in warning signs being presented as erotic. And um I, I'm not un I'm not unsympathetic to women about the draw of a book like that because there's so little good erotica out there for women. And so so there's this kind of sense of like, oh, something that's like that's erotica aimed at women, like thank God, you know. And you realize unfortunately it does it by just completely perpetuating the entire that it's not good erotica for women. It's actually still totally promoting the male agenda. It's freaking horrible. It's a nightmare. It just worries me so much to have that kind of behavior sexualized. The only thing that's on the same level that I can compare it to is the song that Eminem did, unfortunately, with Rihanna participating called Love the Way You Lie. That's one of the most watched videos of the century, which the entire video is the eroticizing of violence, specifically male violence, domestic, male domestic violence, intimate partner violence against women. That entire video is just the eroticizing of the violence. It's quite insidious though as well how things like 50 shades of gray uh things like uh 365 dni which we roasted recently which is its uh european cousin in how they you know present these abusive men as something desirable what they do and i've read a lot of these books is that they they master the abuse behind his wealth behind his um extremely good looks so instead of looking at the behavior for what it is they you know women tend to focus on the fact Christian Christian Gray's heart or the fact he's got a lot of money. And someone always said, like, if you had, say, Christian Gray was living in a basement and was doing all that, people would call out his behavior. They would know that he's abusive straight away. But when you add in the wealth, when you add in the power, when you add in the physical looks, you know, that message seems to get lost. And it's quite almost sick how they sort of, you know, use women's, you know, desires for what they want, because like most women want to 
be with an attractive man <laughs> sort of against us to indoctrinate us to accept more abuse. That's right. And that reminds me actually of why I th- thank you. And because that re- also reminds me of why I brought up Fifty Shades of Grey is that it's specifically training women to go towards what they should be running 180 degrees away from. And then blaming women when they're attracted to that. It's like, but wait a minute, you told women to be attracted to that. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to touch on what you said um, a few minutes ago about how women who've just been in abusive relationships tend to end up in future ones because they disclose to future partners that they were in abusive relationships. So within FDS, we often like tell women to be careful what they disclose to men, especially if they've been abused before. Because if we were to tell a man, oh, I've been abused or I've been assaulted or something like that, um, in an abusive man's mind, he's almost scoping you out as to what you're willing to accept or tolerate. Do you find that that is actually the case, that abusive men sort of almost stake women out, you know, for the abuse they've tolerated in the past? Uh, that, that's one style of abuse, and it's a very, very widespread style. So I would say that's really, really common among abusive men. It's not the only style. Like there's another style of abuser who wants a woman who seems kind of uninjured, who seems really quite together and powerful. Cause then if he dominates her, he feels like he's caught a bigger fish. But yes, the style you're talking about is a, is a, is a very common style of one who wants to, wants to look for where she might be feeling vulnerable or where she might be wounded and really wants to prey upon that. What's, what I think is one of the most important things for a woman who's coming off of an abusive relationship is to not get involved with anybody for quite a while. But that's so hard to do because when you're coming off of an abusive relationship, you've been made to feel ugly. You've been made to feel like there's something wrong with your sexuality or your sexual desires. And you feel lonely as well. And and he's, well, he's often outright destroyed your friendship. So you often are very lonely. Yeah. And it's very hard when you're coming off an abusive relationship not to jump really quickly into being with somebody else so that you won't be so lonely and so that you can get reassured that you are attractive and and also sometimes sort of for protection if the last guy's of the scary style of abuser. And it's important to really fight that temptation and try to get connected to other women and do other things to take care of yourself and fight that temptation to jump into another relationship because you need a break to heal and also because if you jump in too quickly, you're not going to jump with your eyes open. Yeah. And I want to reiterate what Savannah is saying there, because that's a criticism that we get from quite a few women critics of FTS is that like, we tell them don't disclose your trauma history on your dates and probably not for quite a long time until you're very sure this person is safe. And a big reason is because of the fact that it is literally like a big juicy stake to a large percentage of abusive men. A lot of women think like, oh, if I share this information, it'll bond us closer or help us connect. But like the risk that you'll attract an abuser is actually higher than you'll actually attract a man who can connect with you on a real serious level. I'm not saying there's not men like that out there, but like the problem is, is thinking that leading with that kind of thing. The messed up thing about that is like in the moment when it's happening, the woman who's disclosing her trauma or her abuse, she does feel like they're connecting. He'll usually say something like reassuring or like, I'm so glad you shared that with me. I know it's really, you know, so hard for your people to talk about stuff like that. He'll make her feel comforted. And then it's not until a few weeks later, a few months later, where he'll throw it back in her face when it's convenient for him. And that's not how people picture an abuser. 
They don't picture an abuser being someone who's capable of giving this kind of compassion and saying, oh, God, I can't believe that happened to you. Oh, that, you know, you obviously didn't deserve that. They, they, they go, well, he must look. He gave me such a good response. That, you know, that's further confirmation that he's not an abuser. And and it isn't. And And I would also say, like, what have you lost? Why not wait? <laughs> like, that's not going to you're not going to lose a good guy because you waited, a f- you know, f- several more weeks or months before you disclosed your deepest stuff. That's 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 not going to lose you a good guy. <laughs> but as you're saying, it, it will increase your vulnerability to a jerk. I think I, you're absolutely I don't understand how anyone could criticize you for telling women to not be too quick to expose themselves. That just seems like absolutely great advice. Because I think a lot of times people fall in the trope that communication can solve everything. And that's been pushed, 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 pushed by women's media. Like, just communicate, just communicate when it comes to what your needs and vulnerabilities are. So a lot of women think like, oh, if I tell him, hey, I'm struggling with this or I have this, then a man will necessarily meet you with the same good intention and the same openness. First of all, you have the guys that are just like, whoa, I don't want to get involved. (laughs) And actually, those guys are probably preferable than to the guys we're talking about that and look like, oh, fresh meat, right? Or blood in the water. I can come in, swoop in, be the quote unquote knight in shining armor. These guys love bomb and present that image at the beginning and then completely switch up, you know, down the line. It seems obvious to you and I, but I think because of the popular narratives that are constantly pushed by media for women to like just use communication as some kind of catch all to deal with men and that these self-protective measures are mean, judgmental, or sexist to do to men. We're being socialized out of basic self-protective measures that women should have because of the fact that this is how our society is. This is a really frustrating one for me. And I feel like people have this response to other power mongers too. Like someone will report being horribly mistreated by their boss at work. And people will say, oh, well, there's a communication issue here. And it's like, no, This boss is a tyrant. It's not a communication issue. And I get really concerned about people's inability to call tyranny tyranny and also just to understand the level of destructiveness of certain individuals. Now I'm not even talking about men who abuse women. I'm talking about other people who are destructive in other styles. As soon as the destructive person is talking to someone else alone, they start to get that person's sympathy the same way abusers, when they're talking alone to people, start to get people's sympathy. And the person who's getting sucked into being sympathetic starts thinking, oh, yeah, they just all need to open up about their feelings and it's going to be okay. And it's like, oh, no, it's not. Try opening up about your feelings to your tyrannical boss. How do you think that's going to get used? Big mistake. Big mistake. <laughs> you, it, that's right. You're going to pay a big price for that. Your tyrannical boss will find a way to use that against you. You bet. I'm just frustrated by the whole bumper sticker mentality in general. And unfortunately, the social media has made that so much worse. The notion that somehow we can put the answers to complex human problems into six words. It's like, no, you can't. What you can do is feed the problem by with your little six-word formulas. That's all it's going to do. It's feed the problem. We drag social media feminism a lot because of that. They have these like little six-word tropes, and it doesn't really get to the root of the problem. It's centered around very easy answers to complex society-wide structural problem. And I think a lot of that is just because it's easier to sell products. Right. Like that way, it's just the mechanism by which capitalism works. If you just tell women, if you tell women feminism is about body positivity, you can sell women like creams and lotions and, you know, hair products because feminism is about body positivity. Right. 
Right. You're going to be an empowered woman because you're using a better moisturizer. <laughs> Literally, um, though. Like, you're, we're actually not kidding. We we made fun of this article a while back where a woman was, what was it? Like, her husband was cheating on her. Her husband was cheating on her. She had she had a bunch of young children. Her husband wanted the, the relationship to be open. Her husband was uh, bisexual, started having sex with a bunch of men, refused to have sex with her when he came back, and then resented her. And then the relationship that was vice that was given by the columnist was literally you should practice self-care by moisturizing during this difficult time. And I was like, what? <laughs> he was he was abusive to her, he was cheating on her all the time, ignoring their children. And the advice columnist, this is Slate magazine, by the way. So a major media magazine was like moisturized. And we were just like, what? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in the, in the early, I'm, I'm older. I grew up in the early days of the, of the new, you know, this feminist wave, uh, when, you know, you could express your empowerment by smoking cigarettes and killing yourself, you know, the, the, the simple solution stuff is, is really disturbing to me in, in specifically also in a bunch of the ways that it plays out with respect to, to, to abusive relationships. Like one of the things that you'll hear custody evaluators now saying to women is, well, yeah, he's behaving in some destructive ways now, but that's because you've enabled him to do that. It's because you let him get away with it over the course of your marriage. So that like even his abusiveness is blamed on her because not for provoking him, but for allowing it. Of course, then if she tries not to allow it, then she's provoking him. So she, they, she, right. Like either way in their eyes, she did it wrong. Like there is no right way. There is no right way because if she stands up to him more then they say how provocative she is. It's a no win situation. So, right. They've got, they've got a completely set up, but you also, you cannot have any influence on an abusive man's treatment of you by standing up to him more or by standing up to him less. Neither of those will make any difference to how he treats you. And those two pieces of advice are the two pieces of advice she's most commonly going to get from people, that she should stand up to him more and that she should stand up to him less. And of course, what is she supposed to do with these completely contradictory pieces of advice, which, by the way, in some cases will be coming from the same person. The same per they'll, they'll be couching it in slightly different language, but when you actually examine what the person is saying, they are simultaneously telling her that she needs to stand up to him more and that she needs to stand up to him less. But not only is that advice completely contradictory, it also is just plain wrong because you cannot influence an abusive man's behavior. He follows the script. He lives a script that he's going to live. And I have to modify a little bit what I'm saying. You can, you can modify his behavior sort of today to get through the day. And if you're lucky, you might even be able to get through this week. But then he's going to do the thing he's going to do. You can't keep it from happening. All you can do is put it off a while. And sometimes that's worth doing. Abused women do manage the abuser in various ways to get through the day or get through the week, but it's not changing her. It's not solving anything. It's not changing her quality of life. She just has to, for the sake of her children or for the sake of her for herself, she's going to just at least not have him go off today, but then he's just going to go off tomorrow. This sort of, you know, bumper sticker feminism of like, Women need to learn to stand up for themselves. It's like, well, no, like, yeah, that's a great thing to work on, but that's, that's not a solution to anything. Like we have to look at the kind of prices that people pay or specifically when we're talking about women about the price that women pay when they stand up for themselves. It's like you sometimes pay a very high price and women who aren't standing those for up for themselves are often not doing so because they can't stand to pay the price anymore that they've had to pay when they do stand up for themselves. And the answer which to join your complaint about liberal feminism is that the answer is in collectivity. 
The answer is in fighting back in groups. And in sort of the liberal version of things, it's always like, oh, you just need to change your individual behavior. You need to stand up for yourself more. You need to get a better education. You need to use the right moisturizer. And it's like there are so many human problems that you cannot solve alone, even if you do everything right. You're going to have to join with your people. And if you are a woman, your people are other women, right? If you're a person of color, your people are other people of color. You're going to have to join with your people and fight back collectively because, yes, there are collective solutions to problems, but there often are not individual solutions to problems. So it seems like in that particular arena, it's a reaction to conservatism. And I've shared this before in our Patreon, and there was also the same individualist mentality to solving domestic violence within the church, where often the solution for women was to be more submissive and be more feminine and give it to God and pray. And so I think some of the like reactionary liberal feminism is them trying to differentiate themselves from that traditional advice, which is like in an abusive so- situation, a woman is supposed to act more meek. Both of those are individualist solutions to a more collective problem. And there are so many pieces of advice that would actually be helpful if people wouldn't start to claim that they are somehow the solution to the problem or, or wouldn't like universalize them. Like when people say that like what you get back from the world depends partly on what you're putting out into the world. Well, there's clearly some aspects of truth to that. But as soon as you make that an all-encompassing philosophy that says what happens to you is determined by what you're putting out into the world, you've taken a good idea and turned it into a horrible philosophy, a philosophy that that blames all the world's oppressed for their conditions because they're obviously just not putting the right energy out. Yeah, yeah. Um, So... While we're on this uh, topic of conversation, what are the best ways to maintain boundaries if you're in a position where you can't cut contact with your abuser? Because you're saying that there are daily and maybe weekly tactics you can use to try to give yourself some cover or some space while you're trying to escape the situation. Do you have more details on that? There, you know, there, there's, there, it, it's so specific to the particular abuser that it's hard to make general comments like like some women figure out if i really butter him up and flatter him that'll cool him out for a day or two like i'll be able to buy some time that way some women succeed in getting like his friends or relatives to just distract him or divert him or chill him for a while you know but it's it's it, it's so specific to what she knows about him setting clearer boundaries with him does not tend to be particularly helpful because he does not react well. (laughs) He'll pretend at first to react well, but over time, he's actually developing tremendous resentments about the way you've set boundaries with him. I think that's one of the reasons, there are many reasons, but I think that's one of the reasons why so many abusers mistakenly get called narcissists, because that's one thing that that people do who are very self-centered, is they're resentful towards you for setting a boundary with them. If she's not involved with him anymore, then it does start to make a lot of sense to like stop reading his texts, block his number. It's very hard. Block and delete. Hashtag block and delete. That's what we say. That's another thing I loved about this book is it's like, <laughs> if a man's abusing you, don't talk to him for a very long time. Yes. It's, it's, I find that that's a really, really hard one. So I, so I'm glad you folks have pushed on that one. It's really, really hard. It's, uh, you know, it just really, tugs at your heartstrings like what if this is a time he's finally sending a message that's nice and or and especially when you've been traumatized you get the, one of the bitter ironies of how trauma works is that the more you've been mistreated by someone the more desperately you need that person to be nice to you and that's a very unfortunate outcome of trauma 
that you, that you'll actually try harder to get someone to be nice to you who's been terrible to you. You'll put more energy into that person than you'll put into other people because they're connecting with you exactly where you're traumatized. But also because he's often been intimidating, it's very hard to not read his texts or listen to his voicemails because what if, you know, what if it's a scary message and I better know the threat he's making, you know? And, and, uh, and I, you know, I find that very understandable, but I also do find that, that almost always it's best if she just can block his number. It's a such a such a hard step to take, but it's just it's it's just what you got to do. We're all about block and delete much earlier than most people would recommend because of the fact that like you can get into that cycle where you're almost compelled to keep checking, compelled to like understand what's going on and being confused. And the idea is that like you don't have to feel bad. <laughs> Feeling bad and ke- and continuing to engage is a choice unless you know, obviously you have kids and you have to. But even the negative attention or just like the thought that they're getting under your skin is enough for these guys. And that you can actually also escalate the desperation in them by continuing to engage. So it's almost best to just like block them on all platforms and then just leave them wondering. We get so much criticism for this, by the way. Like we tell women like walk away at the first sign of disrespect, first red flag, dump him like and we're called like extremists oh you're so unforgiving you're heartless you have no empathy for men and it's like all we're doing is describing red flags of abusive behavior and telling you to leave before it gets abusive it's it suggests that all men do this stuff which i just don't think is true right that's actually the implication isn't it right like when you say like oh you can't do that because you'll miss really good guys and i'm like is this a common thing where these red flags are just impossible to avoid if he was a good guy he wouldn't do that right there and i think part of what abusers want you to believe is that there aren't decent men out there or or i mean they of course have a completely different definition of what a decent man is but I, what i really mean is they want you to believe that there aren't men who don't do what they do i tell you one of the most hysterical criticisms that i get for why does he do that and i get it all the time it, but i think it's just it just practically makes me laugh out loud and i'll explain to you why is i get these critics saying the way lundy defines what an abusive man is any man could be defined as abusive. And with the kind of examples that he gives in his book, he's going to be destroying a lot of relationships because a guy one time did something that wasn't so nice. And then, well, you folks know, because you're familiar with the book, you read the book, I am not giving examples of subtle behaviors. The examples in, right. I mean, those guys are being awful in that book. And if you can look at those yeah. incidents and say, well, Lundy's naming subtleties, then you're an abuser because no one else would think of those things as subtleties. Any non-abusive man is any non-abusive man is going to read those descriptions and go, "Ooh, that guy's awful." I've seen articles that say that as well. Or Lundy saying every man is abusive, and I'm just like, isn't that more of an indictment on men if you think every man is represented in that book? <laughs> exactly. Isn't that an indictment on the male sex class? And it can happen that like cultures are pervasively abusive in the way that men are raised to think and act towards women, and it can be like a large majority of the men of a population. I don't want to quote a specific study, but I know that there have been studies in certain countries where like 60 to 70% of the male population thinks it's okay to hit your wife if you're having a disagreement. It it can be that an entire population of men thinks really horrific things towards the female population. It just means that the society needs to change, not that women should tolerate more abuse so that we can be in relationships. Well, that's a really good point also. That's that, that, yeah. I really like 
your point about how abusive men try to spread this narrative that all men are like that or that, you know, all men are uh, abusive. I also find the very interesting double speak that we get when we talk about this is whenever we talk about abusiveness, they're like, well, not all men are like that. But if we talk about, say, like watching porn, they'll be like, well, all men are like that kind of thing. So they they bring out the not all men are like that versus the all men are like that, depending on... (laughs) what's convenient to them in the moment. Um, but also the, the weird thing about the narrative of oh, all men are like this is I actually see a lot of other feminists saying this. And I, oh, it always makes me feel a little bit like, mm, because, and by the way, this segment of feminism, we call them like black pillars. They're meaning black pill. I don't know if you know what black pill is. No. It's like this very doom and gloom sort of like ideology oh, okay. where they basically think that like biological determinism is like absolute male physical strength over women is impossible to overcome. They think that uh, men are just like biologically pedophiles, <laughs> abusers, and so on. They think literally 100% of men are abusive. And I'm always, you know, I, I understand they're coming from a place of pain and trauma and so on. But at the same time, this narrative that all men are demonic pedophiles is beneficial to men. Like, like this narrative that all men are abusive benefits abusive men, you know, because women see that and they think, oh, well, all men are like that. You know, there's no point in looking for a decent guy. I have to just put up and make the best of whatever shitty situation I have with this man. I, that, that's a really interesting point. And it clicks for me that, 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 that ultimately you're, you're ironically, you've, you've come out to a place where you're back to justifying the behavior. Yeah. That, that, that's certainly not what the person's intending to do, but, but. Like they're separatists. As you're, as you're, you're, I think you're pointing out that when you really look carefully at it, then ultimately it's justifying the behavior. Like this, this segment of feminists, they're separatists. So their ultimate goal is they want men and women to like separate and they, they mock like heterosexual women. And, um, you know, you don't have to date men. They're oppressing you. Like you're stupid if you date men because men are oppressing you and so on. And, you know, maybe they mean well, maybe they don't. I don't know. Probably not. But, um, my point being that, like, most women look at separatists and think they're crazy and they're not going to be separatists, but they internalize that narrative of all men are like this and then end up, you know, normal women look at that and think, oh, well, I just have to put up with it kind of thing. I, I mean, I would just want to say about separatism that to me it means that means a lot of different things because I do believe it's really, really important for women to be able to, any people, members of any oppressed group, to be able to carve out substantial spaces and substantial hours of the day and just a lot of different places where you just don't have to have people from the dominant group around. I believe that people who are, who are into power, who are power mongers, are aware of the power of the liberating power of the anger and outrage of the oppressed. And I think that's why they're so eager to make sure to take your anger quickly away from you, is that they know there's power in it. And I think that's why men shame women as being too angry. You're too angry. Or why white people, uh, you know, are very fond of shaming African-Americans like you're too angry because they sense actually that there's liberating power in that anger. So they want to stuff that your anger back down your throat as quickly as you can. And that's why I encourage people to take pride in their anger and and not let the power mongers shame you as too angry or don't get defensive and don't start saying, no, I'm not too angry. I, I encourage people to respond. Yeah, I'm angry and I have every reason to be angry. And it's actually a really healthy response that I'm so angry. People should be angry in the face of oppression. 
Hey queens, editing Lilith here. Just jumping in because we ended up talking to Lundy for two hours, making this a definite two-parter. Part two is where this conversation gets spicy. We talk about porn. My complaint about pornography is, how is it portraying women? And it's a sewer. Pornography is a sewer. We talk about polyamory. She said, yeah, we had a polyamorous relationship. He did the poly and I did the amory. And we discuss the virtues of being a difficult woman. You actually need to be somewhat uncooperative to not go along with everything, to not agree with everything, to not just be pleased with everything, to actually be a little difficult at times. And I even coined a new dating phrase. If there's no term for it, I would like to henceforth call this backfooting, where men accuse you of something to put you on the back foot and behave in a way that's beneficial to him. Part two of this discussion will be uploaded to our Patreon this Friday. To listen to it, sign up at www.patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy, and you will access all of our weekly bonus content. If you'd like to read Lundy's latest book, In Custody, a suspense novel about a mother and daughter going missing during a custody dispute, you can purchase it from Amazon. We will drop the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening, queens. And for all you incels out there, we are begging you to bathe yourselves! And die mad. See you next week. Yeah.